my name is Ben and today the date is the 27th of July 2020 and this interview is taking place via Zoom. So to get us started I would like to know a little bit about your background. So could you tell me your name and the year you were born please? Okay. Uh, my name is Sheena McGregor and I was born at the very end of 1949. I've just turned 70. And, well, what else? What else do you want to know? No, all right, yes, so Carrie, uh, that, I would also like to know where you grew up. I grew up in a small village called Houston, which is in Renfrewshire. Uh, I think that's about 15 miles outside Glasgow. I grew up in a very country setting. My father was the factor of a large country estate, so I had a lot of freedom as a child and uh, contact with nature, uh, animals. Uh, I went to Paisley Grammar School, which was a fairly academic school, and went from there to Glasgow School of Art, where I studied printmaking and painting. And um, I was actually top of my year for printmaking. I got the Governor's Prize and did teacher training, but decided not to teach in schools because I did find the way they were teaching art was not the way I would wanted to do it. I didn't like the way it was so exam focused. Uh, I think uh, art is a very, very a much, much more exciting way of working than is usually given credit for. Uh, I did end up working in further education so I was working with people 16 years old plus, and it, it was a very varied approach. There was lots of young people who hadn't done particularly well at school, wanted done a, a fresh start. So we, do, we were doing portfolio preparation for art school, but also an area I found very interesting was adult returners, people possibly who for various reasons hadn't managed to complete their school education perhaps through having children when they were very young or family illness, often mental illness. And there was access courses for people of all ages. And I did find that really interesting. I think further education is a very neglected part of education in Britain. I think it was wonderful when it started, but it's been very neglected over the years. Uh, I ran large community classes for mostly retired women but also young women with families with children and uh, did a lot of work um, all over Glasgow east end of Glasgow working out in communities working on murals mosaics saw a lot of deprivation um, then I was asked if I would consider working part of my week a split week in the adult prison in Glasgow which is Berliny which is probably fairly well known and uh, for the last 10 years of my teaching career, I worked between the prison education service and the college. And it was working in the prison education service that took me into becoming a therapist, an art therapist. I suppose realizing that, um, I thought it was fascinating. Art and music were highly regarded by, it was a very enlightened education unit run by somebody called Kay Blackstock, who was an absolutely amazing, inspiring person. And 
the numbers for the art class were vast, but sometimes the numbers for the large numbers doing subjects like art could offset small numbers of prisoners who wanted to do basic education. Because what I don't think is always understood was very, very many prisoners in Scotland's jails, and I'm sure in other countries, are undiagnosed dyslexics. And a lot of their shame and uh, anger comes from having to constantly hide the fact that they're illiterate. And of course, I've been told all our childhood that they're stupid and they're far from stupid. But uh, they often came in, they, what they wanted to come into the education unit for was to learn to read and write. But they often used the art room as, or the art department as a portal. And they would come in first saying they wanted to join the art class, but then they would almost move sideways and start attending basic education. And I found that way of using art was fascinating to me, that it was something they could ad admit they wanted to do and to learn about. But it was almost unbearable for these very tough men to admit that they were very, very ashamed of the fact that they couldn't read and write. So I, I found the, the arts had a, a very, very useful role there of allowing very, very disadvantaged young men and middle-aged men and old men to access education that they'd been denied in their childhood. So did you find that the, um, the, the, the inmates that you were teaching kind of felt that they could enter education kind of through the a side door, yes. that being kind of the art yeah. Um, so they, they weren't kind of found out. Exactly. The embarrassment that they'd, they'd been spending their whole life using all kinds of subterfuges, saying they'd lost their glasses, you name it, why they couldn't read. But they were dyslexic. And it's... Quite often when we had a wonderful teacher who was a basic ed, who managed to get most of them the help they needed. How did you, um, when they've kind of taken the bold step to move into acquiring those kind of foundational skills, how was it as a um, as um, continuing to support those inmates? How did the, how did that? feel did they kind of peel off or did the art kind of side get even stronger was it more impactful how, how was no, that as a developing just, I think it was just varied you know I think a lot of people in prisons are hungry for knowledge because they've never managed the the school system's too rigid and you probably know that uh, oppositional boys get a pretty rough ride in education everywhere and as a therapist, the, the, quite often that's a large part of your client group is boys, you know, ODD, oppositional defiance disorder. These were the men I met in their 20s and 30s. And I think some, they, they wouldn't knuckle down and do as they were told. But we know now that uh, quite often that behaviour is a sign of attachment disorders, that there's something wrong at home. So uh, I think we're, I don't know if it's changing all that much, but I hope education's becoming 
less punitive. But I'm not sure that's always the case. And I'm not always sure that young boys who are struggling in education get the, the right attention. They tend to be treated as if they're naughty. Whereas that idea that perhaps they can't understand. You know, it's more that they, there's all sorts of complications with eyesight, with dyslexia, with, you know, all kinds of learning disorders that are not, often are not picked up. You know, I work in a university now and sometimes our students are diagnosed as dyslexics and they've been all the way through the school system. And what a struggle that has been. Sorry, you were saying. No, on you go. So how did you manage to um, use art to, to break down that resistance? Because if it, I presume, maybe wrongly, maybe rightly, I don't know, you'll have to tell me, but that, that uh, defiance and resistance to education may have built up so sort of strongly. And even though you say that, the inmates were kind of hungry for knowledge. Was there kind of tactics that you used that um, helped them to access the learning or the love for learning? Uh, I think they were hungry for learning and they, a lot of them were very gifted, whether musically or in poetry. We used to have a fabulous burn supper they were wonderful performers, they could sing, but self-esteem often blocked their access. They were not prepared to go to college or to join formal education systems. Very, very few over, over the years managed to go into formal education. And that's when I realized that these men should have been helped as young children. And that's what made me want to train as a therapist and work with these sort of oppositional boys when they were younger, when you can in some ways help them to help them to manage to access the education they need and, and which they want. It's not that they don't want it. It's just that they, they're, they're resistant to certain approaches that are too disciplinarian or too rigid or exam or attainment focused. You know, they had wonderful minds but they're not always the minds that fit in formal education systems. And um, I presume also that, uh, you know, that the structures that go into making an art therapist and art, an art therapist are quite, uh, you know, well established now. And, and, um, but before that, when you were going into education, how well equipped were, were you, um, or, or rather like how well equipped was the, the institutions you were working for at equipping you to deal with mental health problems? Did you have to kind of pick it up intuitively or, you know, was there structures in place and training in place to kind of give you the skills to, to deal with mental health before you were an art therapist? Not so much. I realized once I started studying art therapy that I should have known things a lot sooner. I did know a lot of things intuitively. I used to wonder why after what had felt like quite a successful day, you know, working with very large groups of prisoners and wonderful artwork and the men's mood appearing to 
lighten and change over the course of the day, why at the end of the day I would feel deflated. But as I, learned, as I started studying, I realized that's something called countertransference. I was picking up the despair of the prisoners, that even though they were engaging in something that they found talent and joy and expression in, they somehow knew that nothing in their lives was really going to change. And, and I could you find tell... myself at the end of the day, standing outside the prison thinking, what was the point of that? And, but it wasn't mine. These, you know, it wasn't my stuff. It was their stuff. I wish, I wish in some ways teachers, uh, I think it's slowly changing, but I don't think teachers know enough about attachment disorders and mental health and how to work with it in children. I think it's slowly changing, but I think, I, I don't think our systems are compassionate, particularly for children who come from deprivation. And, you know, so what, like going back over the course of your whole career, um, but pr re really from when you started but, but as an art therapist, what are the kind of methodologies then that have changed in your time as a, you know if you yeah you're saying that um the system still isn't right um but have the methodologies changed or or is it a case that they just haven't been taken up by the right place i think they are changing slowly but i think they're very underfunded but i i am aware that many schools now have counsellors and therapists working in them but it's piecemeal and it's poorly funded and it feels not uh, not much planning it's a poor relation it limps along perhaps for short interventions funding uh, you know one minute there's funding then it vanishes then it comes back but it's not properly planned and integrated into the education system i, I think you know I think we should know by now that mental health stops children learning. And it's not always the children's mm -hmm. mental health. It can often be family mental health. And, um, yeah, so I was just thinking, could you also just give us a, like an overview of how art therapy actually works? Um, I don't know if that's too broad, a question but um how how would how would you actually um put your work into practice um does it uh, well do um i suppose yeah. um i have a strong belief in creativity in everybody i think we all are creative beings but a lot of people have lost their confidence and uh probably won't be very popular saying this, but I do think the quality of our education in Scotland is atrocious. And I think, you know, I think it should be for everyone and it shouldn't be exam based. I think it should be just a, a time in the, the, the weekly programme where everyone, teachers and children, can play together and learn together. And perhaps teachers can learn from children sometimes. You know, I think we were still very authoritarian and it's about expertise. I think the thing I do love about art therapy is that it's someone, it's an approach alongside another person. 
the therapist is not seen as the person with the knowledge that dictates to the client. You know, where we don't direct the work. We might occasionally use themes if people are a bit stuck, but we work with whatever people bring into the room and however they choose to use the art materials. And it can often be in unconventional ways. I mean, the basic rules are no harm to self or other or deliberate damage of the room, but beyond that, whatever happens, happens. And so, you see the most amazing creativity, amazing, when children are given free reign like that. Can you tell us of uh, an occasion where you were kind of blown away, like a real kind of bullet <laughs> of light that yeah, really kind of changed your view, your world view, or something that you felt was a, a, a real success in the work that you were carrying out? Remember, it's not me carrying it out, it's, it's joint. Mm -hmm. We talk mm -hmm. about co-creation. Right. It's not my work, it's our work. Could you say that again, just because I think I went, mm, in the middle? You did. So. That's very naughty. Um, it's, it wouldn't be seen as my work. It would be something that the child or young person or adult and I do together. I'm not directing it. It's something, it's a, we're, we're on a journey together and we're learning together. And I'm hoping that the person is learning to understand themselves. I might be there to help a bit or listen, but I'm not going to, I'm not a counsellor. I don't give advice. Yeah, so could you tell us well, I could tell, I could tell you about something from my very, very early career. When I started studying art therapy, I did it over three years. And my first uh, placement was actually in the prison. And I had to find part of the prison I hadn't worked in. It had to be a new setting. So I worked in one of the halls in Berliny, which was um, where prisoners were with, I think, with mental health issues. So they had a conviction, but they also had mental health problems. And I was asked if I would work with a prisoner who had, he'd been, had many sentences. He was a very violent man and he had come to the art class, but I could see from the way he was behaving that the other prisoners were very afraid of him. You could see he was unstable. And he, he was moved into something called the high dependency unit. That's this unit that a particular hall with prisoners with mental health problems and I was asked if I would work with the prisoner one-to-one -one, but in the hall that he shouldn't come to education they thought he was a risk to self and others and I knew him he'd been in the art class before and I knew he was highly skilled with art but what he normally did was to copy images from books or photographs and it was a straight it's a theme that you often see in prisoners Birds of prey, but particularly the big powerful birds, you know, like eagles and falcons and th that, that you can see why that would be a very uh, emotive image to somebody who's incarcerated, the, the power of the bird and the, the, the flight. But I was very surprised when I started working with him one-to-one -one, that he started making what, I, what were really very like children's drawings and what he drew over a period of around six months 
was his childhood. And his childhood was brutal. And he made a series of small paintings. He made the first one with me. But he said after that, he was in solitary confinement, 23 hours out of 24. And he said uh, he wanted to paint in his own time. But when he was with me, he wanted to talk because he had no access to talking uh, to anyone, really. And it's a cruel culture in prisons. There's a lot of mocking, making fun of people, humiliating. Not always. I've, I've, uh, Many of the officers are very fine people who work very hard, but there is also a slight black humour and quite cruel humour. So I was very surprised that he had the courage to make these very childlike paintings of him as a very vulnerable child, being quite brutalised by, it was his mother. And there was a series of eight small paintings that he made one after the other of him being scrubbed with bleach, him being shouted at, him being really humiliated. And what happened over the course of painting was he started to find compassion for his mother. And he realized, I remember him saying one day, she was only 17, she was a child herself, and she had seven children in poverty. And what I realized was that the act of painting and externalizing his uh, rage, really, against the mother, allowed him to reflect on what happened and to change his viewpoint. And he went from being a very angry man. At one point, there was a prison officer. I was working in a room that had a glass wall so they could see us. They didn't trust me to be on my own with him. And uh, there was a knock at the window and they said, was I all right? Because they could see he was shouting. But he wasn't shouting at me. He was shouting in his rage and despair. But I had to say to him, if you go on shouting, they'll stop these sessions. So he had to learn to contain his anger and put it into the painting. So uh, I saw him change immensely over that. It was only six months. But I saw huge change and saw him, he said that when he left, he was going to contact his family and he hadn't seen them in 20 years. He was in his 40s by then. And I was, you know, I just saw that that simple act of painting from vivid memories of something quite cruel, a difficult memory, changed him. Wow, that's, that's amazing like, to see such a transformation from from that person to, well, someone completely different. It must well, have somebody been who'd learned quite, to can think. you remember? Yeah, he learned to think. Yeah, he'd learned to think. Hmm. Not, not to act impulsively and to lash out, but to stop and think. You know, and I think, so he learned, and the, word, the word empathy has gone a bit out of fashion. I think we talk about compassion more now. He saw his mother as a victim just as he was. And I thought mm. that, was, that was such a shift. And uh, what mm. I realised was that you, people can change at any age, given the right assistance and time and kindness. Anyone can change. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
Um, well, and it was the painting. It was the painting, the painting, and being able to discuss the paintings with somebody who could listen. He was already a skilled artist. I did not need to give him, you know, and I, I always wanted to have really good quality materials, particularly in the prison, where everything is so, you know, the clothes are cheap, the food's cheap, every, the, the, their physical surroundings are barren. I felt it was important that I could give him good quality watercolour paper and good quality paints. And he used them beautifully, beautifully. But I don't think the paintings would have been as moving if it had been cheap paints or colour pencils. Or I think it was important that he was given proper artistic tools. And I think that's why it's important. There was something about... Sorry. I was just going to say, I think that's why... Can you say I, that again? Because I... I... I think it's important that art therapists have an art training as their first degree. A lot of us don't. And I think some people, they can make up the difference. But I think when you've been through five years of art school, you have a love of art materials. And you know how important, you know, the the smell of paint and the good quality paper, it's different from being given, you know, copy paper and colored pencils. That's not what you would give an adult man to, to work with. They should not be patronizing. They should be given good quality materials to work with because what they have to say is very, very important. So just the, the very active making art was a way of kind of building trust because the materials were high quality and it was a mark of respect and um you know something very different to their usual meagre kind yeah. of barren uh, just spoke of mistrust yeah right or or disrespect i noticed he he always stretched the paper on a wooden board. He knew to do that. Now he knew what he you, was doing. Can you tell me something about your own artwork? I'd like to know if, yeah, if you could describe what your artwork is now or, or what historically it's been, whether I'll send you one. My artwork has changed over the years. Yeah, that'd be but, great. A print. Yeah. Well, I could send you a photograph of a print. Um, I suppose that's the other thing I think is very, very important is that art therapists, any therapist, creative therapists, continue their own journey. But while you're a therapist with others, you're also painting yourself and engaging in whatever discipline you like. I started going to pottery classes. It was something I'd never been interested in, but I did see that children were using clay, always using clay. I think clay, I, I, I suppose I've developed a real love of clay. I think it's possibly the most versatile material. Just because, you know, if you see, you know, I suppose many of the children I've worked with have been on the spectrum. Quite often the first thing they do is to, when they, I always give them the wire cutter, so they cut a slice. 
and they're always fascinated by the texture, but then I always notice they smell it. And it smells of the earth. And I think that's so important. It's the elemental material that goes back to the start of humanity. And I think to, to, to be using clay, uh, it, it, it's part of our core as human beings. We can use it as containers, but we can also use it to make objects or reliefs, or just we can use it to make the most wonderful mess. We can turn it into mud. But uh, I, I have started uh, working with clay a lot myself, which has been a total revelation to me, just the, how complicated it is and how beautiful it is. And the idea that you fire it and it goes through that transformation. I think that's an, uh, just an amazing thing. But I suppose, um, I know that when my, I, I had children uh, just after I left art school and I know my artwork then was all about my children. So I think children have always been very present in my artwork, but I think they, what I was always interested in, having grown up in the country myself and then brought up my own children in the city, uh, I was always slightly worried if bringing children up in the city was not right. I was very aware that it was concrete and tarmac and locked doors and walls and it felt very confining. So I suppose it's those two elements are in my artwork and still are, still very present. The idea that you have foxes and rabbits sometimes in the city trying to belong and to make a life there, but how it's not really natural for any of us to live in cities. It does feel a bit, um, I think it has a, a, a major impact on us that we live in these strange surroundings. You know, the metropolis, the urban environment, it's, it's, it's harsh. The sense of place and um, that kind of juxtaposition between kind of uh, nature and urban is quite prevalent in your work and, and Yes, the, very much so. The kind of, hmm. and does your work impact your, does your artwork impact your work as a therapist? Does it inform it? And the other way around, does your therapy work inform your art practice? I think my art practice helps me process my therapy work. I've always liked <laughs> urban foxes. I think they're the ultimate survivor. Yeah, they're pretty as well. Like rats are very good at urban survival as well, yeah. but they're not so pretty. Not so pretty. Yeah. But I, think, yeah. I think when you see a fox in the city, there's something magical. And they often stop and look at us. You know, and there you can see they're curious. And it's, they're not, they don't always look so scared. You know, they, they sometimes stop and they give you eye-to-eye -eye contact. You know, like, who are you? What are you doing here? So I think they're quite magical beings. But I think definitely... What have you made of 
Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say Carry that I, I think that kind of using art to, to think about what you encounter in your therapeutic work, which can be very painful sometimes, you do need a release. And I, I, I like working so, yeah. in studios with other people. I think that's really important. I don't particularly want to work by myself, which is why I like going to the ceramic studio or the print studio where you're working in a community of artists. I find that very, very helpful when working as a therapist, that there's another place I belong. So the artwork that you create is cathartic art, but it's also the subject matter also deals with elements of mental health. Say necessarily mental health, but I would say vulnerability. So yeah, I was just wondering as well, um, what kinds of support has there been over the years for you and your mental health? Oh, very very good. That's what where I think therapists are. We're very fortunate. I've been very fortunate. I've always had very good supervisors. You know, and that, that, that is something in therapy that I wish other disciplines like teachers uh, would learn from, that you, you can only work with that level of vulnerability and pain if you're very well supported yourself. So we have regular supervision, either in a group or individually, where uh, you know, I would bring the images and I would bring my thoughts and my notes and I would discuss what I'm doing with a, 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 usually somebody who's more senior, though there's not many people more senior than me by now, but um, that you work with somebody who's experienced, very experienced, and who will look at your practice and look at what you're thinking and uh, just help you process everything. And that's a very important part of therapy. And we also can go into therapy, the whole of our training we're in therapy, and then occasionally we go into therapy again if there's issues coming up touch on our own vulnerability as they're bound to if you're working with you know adopted fostered children children that have done a lot of work with sexual abuse have done a lot of work with child protection now when you're working in these areas you need to feel that you're safe because you do hear some terrible stories and um could you also tell us a bit more about the work that you've done with children who have um, who have um, terminal illnesses and how yeah. that yeah I've done a lot of work with children with heart conditions over the years and other illnesses um, some children who've died uh, I'm just amazed at the courage of children but quite often there was children I worked with who had degenerative diseases and I worked with them and their siblings. You know, perhaps one sister at a time, sister and a brother, two sisters. And you could see that children are very intuitive. They know that their time is running out. And there, there was one teenage boy who did not want to join a group of other children with a heart condition, but he did want to work bring his sister, his little sister, and they made beautiful artwork together. And he knew that he would say he knew he didn't have many opportunities left. 
to play with her. I find that very, very moving. But I think you're just creating a space. You can't take the pain away, but you can be a witness to it and you can try and provide the best possible care and to listen and just provide that space where they can be together in a, in a very beautiful way. And I think for the mother, it's so important that she knows that just for that hour, her children are being cared for and she gets a little bit of support. I think for a mother to be in that position that one of her children is going through a degenerative illness is, is awful. So you just want to do everything you possibly can to make as much difference as you can to all of them. Mm, yeah, it must be, it must be incredibly um, re resilient and strong in your yourself well, to sort of I'm, I'm not as be strong as the kids. I'm not as strong as the children. It's the children. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm only there for an hour. They're living it. Mm. So I must Could remember that. that. We're yeah. there for an hour. They're living it 24-7. So I think I don't actually like that therapist saying how tough their life is. Try living with a degenerative illness when you're 15. That's what's hard. We're just there giving as much and support as we possibly how... can. And how different are the approaches that you've used in, say, a prison and, and in a context where you're, um, you're helping a child with a terminal illness? Prisons are tricky places. Um, there was, I, it's quite funny in a way, but I had a real job hanging on to my art materials. They're forever being stolen. Yeah, I used to say to them, why don't you just ask me? They say it's more fun to steal. But um, it's just, I, mean, I don't know if it's, it's that different. But with that, when you're working with a child who's really having such a difficult, difficult time, you're, you're totally focused on the child. You know, you're not worrying about anything else. It's just that child's state of mind for that one hour. That's what's tiring, is that uh, keeping that level of focus and really listening. And, and um, how do you think that attitudes have changed over the, your whole career towards mental health? Well, I suppose it's been quite interesting with the pandemic. I think people are aware how vulnerable we all are. And it's definitely in the press a lot more. You know how mm. there many, and even things like people who've recovered from the illness, who've been on ventilators, saying that that's trauma. And I think, I think people are aware that we're fragile and everybody at some point in their life is going to need some help, all of us, without a doubt. And I, I think it's, I'm hoping that as time goes on, there'll be less embarrassment about admitting that we're struggling or we're not as strong as we think we are, or you know, our mood is variable. 
you know, we're not, we, we can't always predict how we're going to feel and life throws all sorts of things at us. But there's something about um, reaching out to one another and admitting that things can be difficult. If, if we so learn you, that from the virus, then well, that's a good lesson. So it could be a game changer in how, in how we relate to mental health in general as a society, you think? Well, I think it has happened up to a point. But uh, I don't think human beings are very good at holding on to what they learn. Yeah, so we're going to have to practice this kind of spikes in viruses and we really kind of, as a, as a, as a group, as a species, we, we, we need to practice um, dealing with mental health, acknowledging it and, and being compassionate and empathetic about mental yeah. health, you'd and, say. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And well, kindness. Being kind to one another, being aware of one another, being aware if there's an elderly neighbour or somebody that might be stuck at, stuck in or somebody who's been ill recently. That, you know, it, all of us should be a little bit vigilant of each other. There's nothing wrong with sending an email, I haven't seen you for a couple of days, are you okay? And And, and there was a fair amount of taboo surrounding mental health when you started which you think has shifted slowly but quite quickly recently because of covid would you say i think there's still a stigma but i think it's probably less what do you think the causes are of the of those stigmas what's the contributing factor well i think stigma is usually based on fear isn't it Fear of the other, fear of becoming the other. You know, I was quite horrified when I started working with children with heart conditions to learn how lonely they were. Other children didn't want them as their partner or other families didn't want them to come and stay overnight because they were afraid something might happen. But, uh, you know, it meant these children were incredibly lonely. And I think that's probably the case with many illnesses. You know, once a child's unwell, other people tend to shy away from them. And, you know, then there's another issue. They're terribly isolated and lonely. But uh, and that's how, running groups for these children with heart conditions an amazing experience. Amazing. Just seeing them all having fun like ordinary children, but also able to talk together about the fact that they'd had operations, they're maybe waiting for operations, that they couldn't run, they couldn't join in sport. There were so many things they had in common and what a relief that they could talk to one another about what it was like. And, and how, how do you think, or how would you like the relationship between mental health and the arts to change or develop in Scotland in the next sort of five to ten years? Just more, more of it, but not just for people who are mentally ill. Our access to the arts for everybody. I mean, I love going to the theatre and to concerts and to, to, to the ballet, but it's, you know, 50 quid a ticket. 
you know, I think the open access and much more in schools and I think the choirs, but now, now apparently with the virus, we're not supposed to sing anymore. That's a tragedy. But I think it and, is just, uh, you know, there's, there's wonderful music in Scotland. Wonderful, whether it's jazz, classical, folk music, pop music, you name it. There's wonderful musicians. Uh, I just wish the arts were much, much, much better funded. And it, it was something that everybody and, uh, did, whether you've, you've got mental illness or not. But I think particularly when you have mental illness, it really allows you to feel better about yourself, to meet other people, to share in something. And I think it's such a wonderful way of being with other people. And do you use particular artists when you're working with patients that really speak to them or really kind of help that process along? Um, yeah, I don't know if that's a way that you would work at all because it's a lot, it's very patient led. So kind of using a stimulus, but is, are there stimuli that you use and, and what are they and why are they so rich for you and the, and the people that you work with? Well, I often see echoes of quite famous artists in the work of children and young people I work with. So I might say, you know, when I look at that picture of yours, it reminds me of, and it might, I might show them the image, but that would be once they'd finished the image. So it's more that to say to a child, you know, your painting is just as interesting as this painting, and you've got the same theme whatever that theme is, that they've picked, they've picked up a theme that's, you know, it's that Jungian thing about the collective unconscious. I think we're all in touch with a common humanity all the time. And I've, I've seen all sorts of stuff, you know, I love that image by Rachel Whiteread of the house that was made in London, you know, it was a cast. But I've seen children make things like that often. And it's about absence and presence, about loss. You know, no, you, you, this happens frequently that children make something and it, you do remember, you just see something. It could be performance art, it can be um, sculpture, but, and it, you know, you're aware that there, it's, it's just that there's a huge community of humanity that love making things. And uh, but I, I, I don't think I would ever use a, an image as a starting point. Then I'd feel I was influencing the child's own mark making i want them to have their own but i might say that reminds me of something and is there a place a use for public displays of the people who who you work with with the, to display their work publicly is that something that uh, is used in art therapy Exhibiting artwork made by patients and clients in art therapy used to be considered invasive, that it was confidential. But I think that's a lot of nonsense. I think uh, a good art therapist will know and discuss with the person if they want to show their work or not. And I've had many exhibitions of the art done by the children with heart conditions and it was suggested by the 
heart consultant, a cardiologist. She thought the work was so amazing. She said, this should be shown. People should see this. So what I did was I asked the children what they thought about that. And they were very, very keen. And we managed to have exhibitions, but in protective spaces like in a university. So it wasn't shown in a way where it was too public, but the children selected what they showed and they invited their families. And it was totally amazing to see children so proud of what they had achieved, but also explaining their artwork to visitors, like to the doctors, to the nurses, to all the people that came to see it, that they were able to talk about their work in an incredibly intelligent and sensitive way. And I think the medical people who were amazing all came to see it, said they'd never seen that side of the children, these confident people who knew what they were doing. So I think, it, I think it's a neglected aspect of art therapy, but it has to be managed very sensitively and obviously with the, the patient decides, not the therapist. Yeah, there's the Kozler Trust in London that exhibits uh, inmates' work, and that's really breathtaking. Whenever I've been in the past, it's fantastic. Yeah, uh, is there anything that... When I worked in the hmm. prison, I used to send work, work to the Scottish version of that, the Kessler Trust, um, Arthur Kessler. And yeah, I think for, for people who've never had the chance to feel pride, feel pride in themselves, I think that's a massive thing. Now, when I was working in the prison, um, I got a, a request from a school for partially sighted children in Glasgow. They were working with Scottish National Orchestra on a musical piece about the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And they asked if I would be able to produce backdrops for the performance with the prisoners. And we made the most beautiful paintings, beautiful. And they were massive, they were about 10 foot square and they were hung behind the children when they were performing. But uh, that was towards the, just before I left the prison. And the, I was very touched by how the men really valued that they were contributing something to very frail children. And I, I wished I'd known that sooner. I think that's something you could do a lot of with prisoners, but probably also people in hospitals, that they make something for somebody else who's also vulnerable, but perhaps in another way. And that's being able to give back. That is so important. And the, they, I mean, they were coming, asking to come in their lunch hours and to come, I think when we're trying to finish it off, I got permission for them to come in the evening. You know, now they, and the they worked and worked to get these, the most beautiful paintings. And we had work parties and, you know, I, I, I realized I'd tapped into something by accident that could be harnessed to make, not the prisoners could feel good. The, the young people felt somebody else cared about them and we had the most beautiful paintings. Sounds amazing, just that, that they could realize an experience 
that for once they weren't the needy ones, but they were needed. Yes, exactly. And they weren't the social pariahs, but they had something to give. I think yeah, that's, that's uh, you know, I wish I'd realised that long before that we could have been offering you know, to all sorts of, you know, schools for, there's so many schools for children with additional needs. You know, and to say this, this wonderful thing was made for you by prisoners in the prison system. And I think for them to think about not themselves and their, they, you know, there can be a culture in a prison where people feel quite sorry for themselves and hard done by to realize there's other people whose life is more complex and more difficult than yours. I think that's an important lesson. And the fact that they could do something to make that other person feel better, reach out to them. That, I just thought this is something we should have known a long time ago. Mm, yeah, it should be a, yeah, as you say, a lot more common. Yeah. It sounds like an opportunity you missed yes. otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I used to see in the prison and I used to saw, saw all through my career as a therapist, people coming in low in mood because that was in their body language, you know, in their facial expression. And it, it takes a little bit of time, but then you can hear people whistling, singing under their breath, you know, and, the, and you can say, what's that song you're singing? And sometimes it's the most, it, it's a song related to what they're painting. You know, and, uh, you know, you can see that that's their whole being is singing. And uh, that's just from that, that one hour being a creative being. But I was very, very lucky when I worked in the children's hospital in Glasgow the amount of support I got from all the staff, nurses or psychiatrists or medics, you know, they were just, they, they are, that's a wonderful hospital, wonderful. And the way they, they believe in the, in the children. It's a lot of art in that place and it's really, really good. Is there anything else that you wanted to say or to add that you feel like we didn't cover particularly? I suppose important? I'd like to say that, why art is so important is that I think the children and young people first, but then also any adult that's troubled, words are not always the easiest. So I think we're a very verbal culture. And I think quite often when you ask somebody, anybody, particularly children, how are you? They'll say fine. But if then if you give them a lump of clay or a musical instrument, mm -hmm you'll hear or you'll see that they're not fine. But this, they sometimes don't even know that they're not fine. They need the arts to help them know what they're feeling. And then you might come to words, but words are not always easy. We can't always put our feelings into words. We need other languages and that's what the arts are. That's why it's so important that they're properly funded. <laughs> 